Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast where we discuss the artists, themes, and processes that define the world of contemporary photography. My name is Asha Iman Veal, and I'm associate curator here at the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College, Chicago. It is an honor today to host two wonderful guests. Alicia Bruce is a photographer, educator, and activist based in Edinburgh and Aberdeen, Scotland. Her photography intersects strategies of documentary and stage imagery, focusing on human rights, environmental issues, and community advocacy. Alicia's photographs are held in several private and public collections, including the National Galleries of Scotland, Martin Parr Foundation, and St. Andrews University. Thank you for joining us here in Chicago this week, Alicia. Pleasure. Can you tell us about your new book, I Burn But I Am Not Consumed, released by Daylight Books in 2023? Of course. Um, so, I Burn But I Am Not Consumed, the title comes from the McLeod family motto. Donald Trump came to Scotland in 2006 saying that he was going to build what he claimed would be the greatest golf course in the world and um, sort of ran roughshod over planning legislation and also bullied and belittled the local community trying to force their, them out their homes with compulsory purchase order, all in honour of his Scottish mother, Mary Ann MacLeod, who moved to America in May 1930 from the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. So the MacLeod family motto, I burn but I am not consumed, was picked up by a Scottish singer-songwriter, Corrine Poor, and she performed this beautiful spoken word performance on BBC Celtic Connections the night before Trump's inauguration. And so it became the sort of um, the title for the book. The project was called Many, a portrait of a Northeast community in conflict. Later, it was called Many Trumped. So the working title has changed, but the book is a, a tribute and a celebration of the people who weren't bought out by Trump, who wouldn't be sort of blinded by all the bling and power and money and also belittlement that happened to them by Trump. He, um, he thrust them, even though they live rurally in small holdings and things, he thrust them into the international media spotlight against their will and used words like peasants and pigs to describe the local residents. And Michael Forbes, who is twice in the exhibition in Chicago, Donald Trump said he lives like a pig, his home is a slum, he's the village idiot. And Mike was sort of forced, forced on the news to say, well, if I'm the village idiot, he must be the New York clown. And it sort of became this thing that the press really clinged onto, you know, this sort of um, person with less power and money standing up to someone as sort of egotistical and sociopathic as Donald Trump. It resonated with a lot of people, but at the time, the residents, the local press and even the Scottish government, you know, were pro-Trump. So, you know, they were turning their own against them. But now the tides have turned and, you know, Mike was voted top Scot in the Glenfiddich Spirit of Scotland Awards, beating Andy Murray, J.K. Rowling, Sean Connery. So my work, it's really a celebration of them. So although it's Trump is the sort of character that imposed all this stuff upon them, it's not so much about him as it is about these sort of remarkable Scottish people who stood up for for love and for their own rights and for the rights of the site of special scientific interest where they lived. Excellent. That was a very long answer, wasn't it? That was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's an honour to have you here participating in the exhibition Presently on View, Love Still Not the Lesser. Thank you. Thank you. 
we also have here in Chicago, showing a beautiful and compelling body of work at MOCP, Tom Merlian, visiting from London, UK. Thank you for being here, Tom. You're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Of course. Returning to photography after several years as a filmmaker, Tom Merlian's photography combines the structures and traditions of post-portraiture with the immediacy and responsiveness of observational documentary. He is exhibited at the National Portrait Gallery in London, Belfast Exposed Photography Gallery in Northern Ireland, and the Midlands Arts Centre and RBSA Gallery in Birmingham, amongst others. Tom, can you please tell us about your project that's on view at MOCP? Well, it started probably about four years ago. My mum went into hospital and I wanted to document it. As a photographer, I wanted to document what was going on. And I felt that I sort of would document it in kind of a traditional kind of way, sort of standing back, which felt quite weird because I was photographing my mum, my own family. But what kind of made it more interesting was that she asked for, um, she was an artist, she asked for her own camera and she was taking photographs in the hospital of people who were caring for her, details of things in her room. And, but also she started taking selfies, which is kind of unusual. I mean, I don't think she knew what a notion of a selfie was in the same way that people do now. And not only that, she was wearing makeup in some of these selfies. Now I must say that I didn't actually see any of these photographs until she passed and, um, I went to collect her belongings and so it came as a bit of a surprise but also it came as a kind of you know I've been feeling a little bit guilty about taking pictures of her in her moment of of passing on but it's almost like she was doing the same she was documenting the same thing so that kind of gave it a kind of validation in a way I then continued to take photographs of my dad afterwards and how he was coping on his own and then lockdown happened with the pandemic and I spent uh, quite some time with my dad, carried on photographing him and then started making photographs that were sort of a bit more formal and a bit more posed as opposed to sort of observational. And he sort of collaborated with on the, uh, he collaborated in a way that he would comment on the work and we'd kind of work together about, you know, what the kind of pictures we were going to take. But was it, what was interesting is that my mom's studio had remained the same and I started looking through um, her work and found photographs that she'd taken in the 70s and 80s that were only ever going to be sort of studies for paintings. You know, they weren't photographs in their own right, but they, they were beautiful and they were really nice. And her presence was in some of them. You know, her shadow was sort of, you know, if the sun was behind her and she was taking a photograph of my dad reclined asleep, you know, you'd see her shadow imposed on him, which was kind of interesting for me. And I, I realised that, you know, he was her muse to a certain extent, you know, the painting she made of him. And now he, he'd become my muse. And I think there's something quite interesting about the three of us. I'm an only child, so the sort of dynamic between the three of us, sort of, I suppose, exploring love for each other, but also loss, obviously, with my mum. And I've continued photographing my dad, and, you know, he's 93 in two weeks' time, and we're still still making work together. So it's continuing. It's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not over yet. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And the title of this body of work is so eloquent. Can you tell us a little bit about that title? Yeah, it's kind of, it, it comes from two standpoints really one uh, like I've just explained there's something quite nice about my mom's shadow over my dad and something nice between light and dark the dark of the shadow the light of the picture but also it also comes from there's another sort of body of work that's informing it that actually isn't being shown but I was when I was in France taking these pictures in the pandemic there was that there was um 
point where you had to be home. You only could be within a few kilometers of, of where you were living and you had to be home at a certain time. And that certain time was six o'clock and it was getting darker. And I was basically taking pictures just before it got dark. So although there aren't any pictures, those pictures in the exhibition at the moment, I suppose they're a kind of a metaphor for between light and dark, between, you know, life and death. You know, there, there, there are sort of a few mini meanings there really, but, um, and knowing that, you know, my dad will pass at some point, you know, I suppose it's that journey. I hate using the word journey. I hate, <laughs> I hate it when people say that we go, I'm going on a journey, but it is kind of a journey, mm. I guess. Yeah. Between light and dark. Thank you so much. I am so excited to learn about your artistic inspirations behind both of the works we've just discussed. And I'm curious if you could describe, please, because this is Focal Point, the podcast where we take a look at objects in the vault of MOCP, and you each have chosen a photograph that's inspired you or somehow relates to your practice. Maybe, Alicia, could you start and just tell us what this work is, the title, the artist, and describe it for the audience. What does it look like? So the, the image I chose, the piece from the collection, is the New Haven Fishwife, which is one of a very big series by the artists who are credited for MOCP are David Octavus Hill and Robert Adamson, who are known as pioneers of Scottish photography right at the birth of photography. And the date of the image is circa 1843 and 1845, and it's a calotype. So... One of the interesting things about David Octopus Hill and Robert Adamson is right at the start of the birth of photography, they were making social documentary portraits, um, some of the first in the world and ones that I keep returning back to again and again. And the New Haven fishwives for me are special because they're, they're empowered women at work. You know, they were, you know, they controlled the finances of the family businesses. They had these um, chums, it's called chumming, so a lot of fisherwomen would um, also pair up with other women who were their chums because often men would get lost at sea and they'd be controlling the family businesses. They were super strong. They used to be able to carry a basket of fish. Edinburgh's covered in hills, so all the way from New Haven Harbour, up Leith Walk, up towards Edinburgh Castle, you know, carrying big baskets and then selling the fish that the men had caught that day. But they're really beautiful, eloquent portraits. If you look at sort of through the history of portraiture, you know, August Sanders portraits, people of the 20th century, Renika Dijkstra's portraits, you see that sort of same approach again and again. They've been highly influential. And the reason there's so many of them, that they made so many in such a short period of time, they would also photograph what was crassly called the great and the good in Edinburgh. You know, all the artists and, you know, Dr Simpson who... I think invented anaesthetic for hospitals and and all that kind of thing. They photographed the first first photograph supposedly of a hangover. Really? <laughs> called The Morning After, He Greatly Daring Dined, where a man is leaning on a pillar with his head in his hands and his sort of hangover remedies beside him. But for me, the most interesting work is the New Haven Fishwives. And this lady here, I don't know her name and I wish that I'd shared it with photo historians before I picked it because it's the only Scottish picture in your collection, but also it's got a really strong link to my book because they are referenced by Louise Pearson, the curator of photography at the National Galleries of Scotland. She puts my work in the context of David Octavus Hill and Robert Adamson's work in her essay, which is Scottish photography was born out of disruption because the reason Hill and Ad Adamson worked together 
David Octavus Hill was a painter. He was the president of the Royal Scottish Academy and he wanted to make a painting of the disruption of the Free Church of Scotland and they made portraits of every single minister that was going to be in this epic painting. But also some of the New Haven fishwives are in there as well. And so the reason they used photography was a tool for painting to start with, but then they made, they became prominent photographers. More interesting to me, even more interesting, if I couldn't have been more obsessed with it, is the fact that um, they had an assistant called Jessie Mann, who's just being recognised now as um, a collaborator. You know, she was a highly skilled photographic assistant right at the birth of Scottish photography. And we're now finding out that some of their portraits were made by her. She was very skilled and other artists would comment on how um, how wonderful Jessie was. So, you know, there's this, there are other hidden histories. I don't know if Jessie was involved in making this picture, but I love to think that, you know, her presence would have brought something different to the whole dynamic between the sitter and the photographer. Yeah. You know, because people wouldn't have seen photographs of themselves necessarily just a few years after the birth of photography, particularly people who are working. Um, so for me, that's all really, really special. And the picture's full of symbolism. So Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Alicia. Tom, what are you inspired by in the collection? What are we looking at today? Well, I chose... Um... Joel Sternfeld's um, McLean, Virginia, which was taken in 1978 as part of his body of work, American Prospects. Now, it doesn't really have any direct relationship with the work I'm making at the moment, but it certainly has significance in my own sort of photographic journey. There's that word again, journey. Um, having I, So, you know, I left college, I did film and photography and moved to London and thought, you know what, I'm going to start collecting photography books you know if I make a little bit of money you know I'll buy a book a month or something and I bought a copy of American Prospects because I was interested in large format American photography of the sort of 70s 80s um, you know um, Stephen Shaw and Miserac and various others whose names escape me at the moment but um, what I what I like about this particular photograph and all his photographs in that series is the sort of mystery and the kind of the detail and the fact that what we're seeing is a sort of sort of a rural but suburban scene of a of a fireman you know outside a sort of ramshackle store buying a pumpkin casually buying a pumpkin and in the background there's a house on fire and i mean there's a story behind it it was a, it was a training exercise but as a photograph i really love the mystery of it and i like the kind of the tension and it reminds me of, of I think you say Diane Arbus I'd say Diane Arbus but you know she said um, the photograph is a secret about a secret the more it tells you the less you know and I, I just love that as a quote and I love photographs that do that the other reason I like his photography is because you know he got um, I think he got two Guggenheim scholarships and you know he bought a camper van and he got in his camper van and he went around, like a lot of photographers did, like Stephen Shaw did, you know, went and took photographs, but made sure that photographs he was taking were taken at the right time of year. You know, the, I mean, obviously he was coming across subject matter all the time, but, you know, choosing the right, you know, shooting, you know, eight by 10, you know, so it's, it's an expensive business. So he was, he was creating these amazing tableaus and amazing scenes from reality. And, you know, you've got to love a road trip and you've got to love the discovery that you go on. So I suppose that 
sort of bears a kind of relationship. Obviously, it's not the same, but you know, it's 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 a it's a journey of discovery. So yeah, but the main thing is, I mean, there's a photographer that I, I won't name, but I, I find his photographs, you know, staged and trying to do all the things that a Joel Sternfeld picture does, but in a in a in a way that kind of just just doesn't do it for me. They're soulless and they're emotionless and they're kind of they're trying to do something that just isn't oh, it just doesn't resonate with me. So that's why I love Joel Sternfeld's pictures, but not this beep photographer whose name I will not say. But <laughs> People might know who I'm talking about. (laughs) Big production, hundred thousand dollar prints. That's not me. No, no, definitely not you. Your stage. This this is the thing, isn't it? You're, you know, there you are. You're staging something. You're creating something. But there's a whole story behind it. There's reality behind it. You know, these people are being bullied by this man. But you know, you're. It's a collaboration as opposed to sort of a just shallow nonsense of the photographer whose name I will not say Whew. I've got it out now you've got it That's out it. yeah you've it's a therapy out. session isn't it yeah. <laughs> can you let us know a little bit more about how you met and can you tell us about these incredible photography communities that you're both part of in the UK so how did you meet where did you meet and what communities are you part of I'm fascinated by this well we met via format festival but we didn't actually meet in person during Format Festival, but then I became aware of Tom's work. Although I knew Tom's work, but I became aware of Tom the person after we were both curated into this exhibition in Chicago. And then (laughs) it turned out that we'd been... That I'd been following her. No, no. Stalking her. (laughs) She found me in one of her selfie pictures in the background. Yeah, a selfie at Format of me and all my friends. And Tom was with us. And they spent the whole evening in the pub with us. But I was having deeping, meaningful chats with other friends. And then we were both at Portfolio Reviews the following day. And we both separately met your lovely self as well as other people. And then we bumped into each other recently in Arl. Yeah. Le Contres Arl, you can probably pronounce that better. But again, it's like photo networks and photo communities. It's their communities of interest. It's not necessarily geographic. You know, you meet all these friends. Me and my pals used to call going to our holidays, PH holidays, (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it's a chance to really, you know, discuss and debate photography and also reconnect with really lovely people. And it does feel like the sort of photography community in the UK is actually reasonably small. I Mm -hmm. mean, if you... You don't know so, of somebody, then you kind of know somebody in between. So you know, there's, there's all those sort of connections there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But we did connect. We decided to zoom each other once we both realised that we were. In, well, you'd informed us that we were in the show. Yeah. Uh, and we did have a couple of zooms just to chat. Yeah, and then we bumped into each other in the square in Arl, yeah. where the um, famous Van Gogh Cafe at Night painting is. Everyone, it's called Plaster Forum, but everyone calls it the Square like meet at the square when everyone hangs out at midnight sort of partying and discussing photography books and, you know, <laughs> yeah. reflecting on what everyone's seen that day. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's great. And formats like that as well. I love that you came to Format this year. I was so excited to meet you. And after I read about your, your profile and things, Asha, I just... I think um, there are people in the photo communities in the UK and in Europe and globally who are just natural connectors. You're a connector. I'm a connector. I can't help connecting things and people. And I love 
doing that for people. And then obviously Seba Chowdhury, Seb, she's like one of the best connectors in the photo world and one of the most modest, lovely, kind people. You know, people like her and Louise Clements, you know, they pull special communities together. And hopefully you'll come to my book launch in London. Definitely. Yay. Excellent, excellent. So your book launch in London, and for the audience here who perhaps hasn't seen these images, can you describe for us not necessarily um, the setting and the process, but what will they see? Mm -hmm. What do your images look like? Tell us about these pages when we open your book. What Ah, will we see? Okay, so when you open the book, you'll read a quote by George Mackay Brown, an Orkney poet. They walked along the ocean of the end and the beginning. Then you'll see a developer's map of the area of many where you can see what Trump had proposed to do, but also where the residents' houses are, and plus aerial shots by Patricia and Angus MacDonald, photographers of the golf course and the area. And then as you go through the images, it's like you're zooming in and out of of the area, like you're walking over the sand dunes, seeing you know the environmental impact start to happen, but also going into and visiting the residents in their homes, which... Um, Trump said were pigsties, but they're very proud of their homes and wanted to represent their their homes and their, their own land within within the images. So one of the ones that's in the exhibition here is um, Mike and Sheila Forbes, Mill of Many, August 2010, 21st of August 2010. And um, a lot of my images, when I first started making work in Many, if I have the chance to, if I'm making a portrait of someone, I really like to take my time and get to know them. I don't want to... It's not tokenism for me, it's part of a sort of conversation and a dialogue with me and the person that I'm making a picture with. And for the project in many, a lot of the portraits are based on artworks from Aberdeen Art Gallery and Museums, where we recently had a book launch. But Mike and Sheila sort of broke the mould there. They picked a painting that they said they knew would piss off Donald Trump, and it's American Gothic by Grant Wood, which is hanging across the road from here. Remarkably, and I remember at the time being like, this is such a parodied painting. I wasn't 100% sold on the idea, but they they liked it. And it sort of come from me. We'd gone to do another picture of Mike with his fishing boat, a salmon fishing boat called the Highland Ferryman by William Dice, but we couldn't access it because the Trump organisation had blocked access to, to his fishing equipment, which is the worst thing they could have done to Mike, you know, because family's got 100 years of salmon fishing history in that area and as we were walking back everyone was a bit downhearted and I took a snapshot of them not a not a formal portrait I was like do you know you two your expressions right now you remind me of a painting and I showed them it on the back of my digital camera and they were like hi we cannot paint in a hat so I went and I said well I'll come back in a few days I'll print off a copy and they were like that's it that's what we want for our painting and everyone knew what everyone else had chosen you know, the other neighbours for their pictures, so they felt like that was right for them. And so we did some images with and without the the pitchfork. But it gave Mike and Sheila an opportunity. Firstly, Mike said he can't, he can't, it would piss off Donald Trump, but also it gave them an opportunity to show that they were, like, proud of their home. You know, it wasn't or isn't, you know, meant to be a show home. It's a, a working craft, you know. You find things that are sort of being... And ultimately, it's recycling. You know, Mike gets old tractor parts and builds new tractors. And there was, at one point, 
Trump Jr. is recorded by my friend Anthony Baxter saying this, that if Mike got a tractor from the 1930s working, he would give him the golf course. And Mike has got that tractor working. So <laughs> <laughs> we're waiting to we're waiting for him to get the golf course. But yeah, also they um their home is activism as well. They wouldn't they wouldn't use that word, but on the side of that same tractor shed, Mike has spray painted no golf course, no more Trump lies. It's been there since 2006, 2007, he repaints it every so often. Artists across the years have gifted artworks to add onto the shed as well. And Molly also had on her chicken shed, you know, Trump the greatest liar. So yeah, their portrait, it's really a conversation between me and them. So that's why I say my work is semi-staged documentary photography. And if any photographer says that their work isn't staged in any way, they're probably not really being truthful with themselves because even, you know, sort of mindful, humane documentary photography, there's that, like Cartier-Besson says, it's like the aligning with the heart and the mind and the head all at once when you make a picture. There are things that come into play, you know, these sort of decisive moments like the Stern yeah, and, film. And you're also, you know, you're looking at 35 degrees of a whole 360-degree <coughs> scene. Yeah. You know, so you're already imposing your own... Your own viewpoint. Your own viewpoint. So yeah. no matter what happens within that frame, you've already cut out everything else that's going on around yeah. you. So I'm sort of revealing that a bit more by um, admitting, it's not the right word, by acknowledging that the inspiration between some of these portraits come from another starting point by looking at an artwork. And it, it means that the people in an image can then have their say, you know, and where they stand, why they stand there, what they're going to wear, how they're going to be represented. So I think it brings, rather than it being a sort of facade, like the photographer that you were saying who makes highly staged sort of work with a cinematic gloss, this is a bit more low-key, I guess, a bit more intimate with the subject. Yeah, it has substance with the subject. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, but I, I remember being really nervous about that picture and thinking, is it too obvious? But then, you know, within three weeks of the first exhibition of that picture in early 2011, it was um, acquired for the National Galleries of Scotland, which for me was amazing because it made it elevated Mike and Sheila from these people that Trump was bullying and belittling. They'd had their water cut off for months on end. Mike's mother Molly was having to go with a wheelbarrow and a bucket and whatever she could get to get water out the burn to flush her toilet and to feed her hens and to, you know, like a woman in her 80s who Trump said reminded him of his mother. And she was like, well, I hope he doesn't treat his own mother like this. Yeah. I like what you have said about decision-making process, and it makes me think mm -hmm. about Tom's work as well. Mm -hmm. So, Tom, you said you hadn't actually seen the photographs your mom was taking while she was in hospital until after she'd passed away. Can you tell us about your process of building a new body of work that incorporates archival over, like, many decades, but also original photographs, and by a few different authors, two different authors? You know, I found the photographs of my dad that she'd taken in the 70s and 80s. There weren't lots of them. There were a few of them. They were obviously work prints. What I liked about them was the fact they actually have paint on them. So although they're black and white images, there's actually, you know, colour paint on the on the surface of the photograph. And although in the exhibition there are obviously uh, reproductions of, of those, there's something... There was something really nice. One, that it was a photograph. Two, that it showed my mum's sort of um, way of working. Although I didn't want to, you know, I've never tried to sort of 
recreate the same photograph, the same composition, you know, of, of my dad now. You know, that's too much of a direct kind of comparison. I don't think you kind of need that. There's something always nice about seeing photographs of people when they're a certain age and then when they're much older. There's just something nice about that. I don't, mm. there's a whole thesis on that, I would imagine. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's something, you know, I was remembering my dad when he was that age, when I was much younger. There's also some slides that I found, my dad up a ladder painting, and I always remember him doing DIY around the house. You know, he was, he was always up a ladder. He was always mm -hmm. doing something. And so, you know, when I then photographed him watering the garden, you know, here's, there's, there's probably mm. 40 years between the two photographs of him up a ladder and him watering the garden. But there's a nice, you know, there's just a nice juxtaposition of, of him doing things, still doing things in his 90s, you know. And, and I think I'm probably going a bit off subject here, but I think, you know, his, what I'm finding with my dad is that, you know, his body is failing him and, you know, the vessel that he's used to do things he can't use anymore. So now it's me doing things for him. So last time I was there, I was painting shutters, I was going up a ladder and he sits there and, you know, I've, I've realised, I think like a lot of children, even even children when you're in your mid fifties, you know, you, you just have to sort of go, right, well, I'm just going to have to, I'm just his body. I'm just doing what he wants, what he wants to do. There's no point in questioning it. There's no point in sort of saying, well, dad, I'll do it this way. You know, you just, that's what I'm doing. I'm just being a, not conduit, is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah, conduit <laughs> for, for, for him. But yeah, no, combining archive and it, it sort of came later in the whole process. And it's only when I sort of start seeing those photographs and seeing how beautiful they were and then juxtaposing them with the photographs I'd taken. And as I say, not a direct juxtaposition, but, you know, somehow they're just sort of bouncing off each other and seeing the contact sheets of my mom that um, one of her fellow lecturers had taken and just sort of seeing the fun and the vitality and, you know, the life mm -hmm. in those. And something always nice about contact sheets because you just see, like we're saying, you know, it's not you're seeing the, the context a little bit more mm. and, uh, you know, juxtaposing that with, with somebody's life and, and death is, is obviously poignant and universal to, to everybody. Excellent. Excellent. Someone's name I would love you to say. So your mother, who is your partner in this project between light and dark, can you tell us about her practice? And she actually founded something, co-founded something quite special. Yeah, so my mom um, obviously was a, was a painter and she, with a group of fellow artists and fellow lecturers in Birmingham in 1964, they founded the Icon Gallery, which is a pretty prestigious gallery. Um, oh, yeah. Not a commercial gallery, but um, a great gallery for international, for local artists. And she had a couple of shows there and she was the only woman uh, amongst the six, five, five founders. And she worked there. She, she worked with the icon for a few years, but then she had me. <laughs> and then I think she just decided that she was going to just focus on her own art, which she's quite funny. My mum never really, she exhibited a couple of times, but then she really was one of these people who worked because she loved working. She loved making art. She loved making pictures and she wasn't in it for, for, exhibitions or fame or anything she did it because of the love of it and so I guess the whole thing is a sort of almost like a posthumous collaboration between me and my mother and my dad as, as our muse and do you know other photographers who work in this sort of way I know um in Scotland we've got Colin Gray I don't oh know yeah Colin Gray the Collins. parents yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and in sickness and in health which is about his parents 
as his mother's health declines and now his dad's passed as well I think I could see a, a show with your work together well, I think it's I mean there's, you know it's not it's not um unusual that photographers would turn their lenses towards their parents you know mm -hmm. it's you know photography time stands still and you're trying to you're trying to capture you know an emotion mm -hmm. parents you want them to live forever and they don't <laughs> so you know Larry Sultan's uh, pictures from home my favorite photographer of whose subject matter has been his parents is Paddy Summerfield who photographed his parents from the viewpoint of the the window of the house that they lived in so look always looking out into the garden mm -hmm. and because he was never <clears> close up to the parents you know they could be anybody's parents and you know it's a sad story the garden the, the garden goes into more and more decline as they get older and they can not look after it anymore you know and first of all his mother dies i think she had dementia and then you know his father is then this lone figure sort of around the garden and then his father dies and then you know the final few pictures of the, of the garden just completely overgrown and a really moving um, body of work but as I say moving mainly because it, it you know as a, as a child you see your parents and hope they can live forever and there you're seeing this sort of through the sort of metaphor of the garden but also with distance them could be your parents that you're looking at mm. I guess, can I sorry. ask you mm -hmm. in the exhibition I'm wondering, and maybe Ash as well, with the theme of love, what is it in your work do you feel is exploring that? I think it's kind of a few things, really. I mean, obviously, I love Mike and Sheila. They feel like family to me because I've been friends with them for so long now through meeting them, through wanting to make a picture of them. And then there's their love for each other, I think, is a subject in this exhibition, which is a sort of... There's a stoicism to it. It's not a, a gushy chocolate boxes and flowers type love. It's a bit more sort of practical than that. But, you know, seeing how Sheila has stayed out the spotlight throughout this whole Trump um, thing and unfortunately passed away in 2020, which was a great shock to, to all of us. And then Mike spent a year sourcing granite. I mean, as a sort of crofter fisherman and also a quarryman, he was the foreman of a granite quarry, um, sourcing granite to build her a cairn, a monument to her in the garden. You know, it's just beautiful. And again, that's got a, an older photograph of them as a younger couple on this cairn. And he built it because he wanted to bury her ashes. And he had this beautiful ceremony. I think there were about 20 people there and Andrew, my partner, and I, I should say, Andrew has got his own career <laughs> and things, but he assisted a lot of these portraits that I made because I don't drive, so Andrew would drive there. He held a reflector for Mike and Sheila's portrait that day and, again, gets on so well with them all. Um, yeah, so Mike doing that for Sheila, you know, and hearing about it all the time, him trying, he had to get the right stone, it had to be a certain way. That is an outpouring of love and grief and, you know, a sort of, for someone to build a monument for you after you've gone and with such a Scottish tradition, but then also looking at what was also happening in that period of time. You know, Donald Trump's ex-wife died and got buried on an American Trump golf course, which is allegedly for some sort of tax relief. But if you look at, again, you know, Trump personally 
wanted to bully him by little Mike and make an enemy of him and make it a sort of a new story that they were enemies that got went on for years and years. And then you contrast those two men, it just it summarises everything that I love about Mike and Sheila and about the residents of many. Because Trump will never understand these sort of intangible things about why you're connected to a place, what your family history means, what, you know, your integrity is for. And so I think in this exhibition, that's what Asha's really picked up on, that sort of context of Mike and Sheila and the... Well, know. the context is brilliant. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it really sort of adds so much... You know, I'm, I'm trying to imagine it if that wasn't that... If they didn't have that context, it'd still be powerful anyway. Oh, but then it you. has that context as well, which is just um, mm -hmm. makes it even more powerful. Yeah. I wonder as well with your mum, it's almost like I feel like she knew you were going to... She didn't tell you about these self-portraits that she'd made where she'd, you know, she'd painted her, her face, you know, so it's still a creative outlet. And she left them for you to find later. I think she knew it's, that... It's quite you, bonkers, really, isn't it? I mean, it's it's beautiful. Like, it's it's I mean just and I didn't get the camera out straight away you know it was a few weeks and I thought I better you know have a look see what she photographed mm -hmm. and the first photographs were, as I say were just sort of details of the room and portraits of the carers coming in and you know some of the carers you could you can see on their faces um you know they they know where you are ending going to end up you know they know that you're not long for this life you know you can kind of see mm -hmm. it in their faces she's mm -hmm. kind of captured that with a couple of them yeah and um then these the the series of selfies were just like, you know, my mum was not narcissistic in any way. Um, as I say, she very rarely wore makeup, and she made herself up. Mm -hmm. And the, the series of photographs, and then the last one is sort of look. You know, she looks like you know, she's on her way out. Basically, mm -hmm. um, it's like a gift to you, though. She wanted you to find it like mm, a hidden letter. I'm I'm thrilled to sort of have. And hopefully, I mean, I'm not a believer in the afterlife or anything, but, you know, a sense that, you know, she has got work hanging in a prestigious gallery in Chicago. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's quite touching. Yeah. Thank you, Asha. Oh, <laughs> it is it's beautiful. Like, I want to see all your mum's paintings and, and things now. And I love, you know, that you've taken things from her studio. You know, part of that work, that's part of your experience growing mm. up and your experience of her and her, her methods. Yeah. Are sort of on this wall in Chicago. Because we're quite opposite in terms of backgrounds as well. You know, you've been nurtured through art and through art education. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, but like any teenager, I rebelled against it and wanted to get into science. Ah, only, okay. only, it's only when I failed quite a few O levels. Yeah. And my English teacher sat me down in the, my garden with a beer and said, So what are you going to do? And I said, oh. He said, What do you enjoy doing? And I, thought, I said, well, I enjoy taking photographs. Mm -hmm. I said, well, why don't you do that then? Yeah. So. Nobody encouraged me to work in the arts. There are no artists in my family at all. I'm the second person in my family to go to university. And when I said I was going to university to do photography and film, they were like, fit, what'd you do that for? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so I don't know. I just had to make a different path. Um, but... I suppose I relate to your mum because <laughs> I'm a, a maker and an artist and, you know, it's like giving your child that experience through the arts and, you know, even if you're money poor, you can be culturally rich through the arts and it informs your character, I think. Mm. Love, still not the lesser. 
on view August through December 2023 at the Museum of Contemporary Photography. What does it mean to understand love? Focal Point is presented by the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago in partnership with WCRX-FM. Special thanks to the WCRX team, Matt, Matthew, and Max. An additional thanks, our music is by Zavi. To see the MOCP collection's photographic images discussed today, please visit mocp.org backslash focal point. You can also follow the MOCP on Facebook and Instagram at MOCPshy and on Twitter at MOCPshy underscore Chicago. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Focal Point anywhere you receive your podcasts. Once again, thank you for listening.